I'm Professor Laura Empson. And I'm David Morley. And this is Leading Professional People. In this series, we're bringing together cutting-edge theory and first-hand experience to offer in-depth insights into the unique challenges of leading professionals. And also in this episode, we'll be exploring why professionals can be reluctant to take up the role of leader and what can be done to support them making the transition to leadership. So today we're talking about reluctant leaders, and it strikes me there's an irony here. Our whole podcast series is about leading professionals, but we both know that most professionals don't aspire to leadership. So, I mean, do you think anyone's actually going to be listening to this? Well, I think they should aspire to leadership because these firms are really big economic enterprises now, and they're becoming more complex. Competition's increasing. The margin for error is much slimmer than it used to be. And I think the quality of leadership really makes a difference. And it's going to be a significant competitive advantage in the future to have higher quality leadership. Anyone who believes in the firm and who wants the firm to succeed, I think, should consider stepping forward to take a leadership role at any level. Yeah, but they don't. So let's think about why. And it's something I've thought a lot about. And through my research, I've studied it to try and make sense of it. Professionals are typically very driven, very ambitious. And in a conventional organisation, that would mean they were ambitious for a leadership role. But it doesn't work like that in professional organisations. And I think it's something to do with the nature of the career structure of a professional. Their first priority, straight out of university, is, is to focus on becoming outstandingly technically skilled. And then, as they progress, on developing outstanding client skills. And then one day, suddenly, they're asked to move into a leadership role. And this is a role where they may have had very little interest or even any basic competence. And yet it carries a great deal of responsibility and very little authority. I mean, in that environment, you must wonder why would anyone want to do the job at all? Because the worst case scenario is you get stuck with administrative work and become a a garbage can for complaints. Or if you do have any grand ideas for what you want to achieve as a leader, you may find you can't implement them because you've got a lot of responsibility, but not enough authority. So actually, this reluctance is completely rational. Yeah, Laura, you're making me feel like I've completely wasted my life. Well, I think I'm interested. Why, given all that, did you ever want to step up to leadership? Well, it's a role and it's a responsibility and I think someone has to do it and it's important for the firm. So you did it because you're self-sacrificing and very noble? At some level, I thought I could contribute on a larger stage than I was doing before I took up a leadership role. You know, I remember talking to a leader, one of your competitors, and he said, I became a leader because I got fed up lying awake at night feeling angry with the idiot who was running the firm. Well, I'm not sure I'm going to admit to that, but... I suppose, you know, another reason for stepping up that you do come across it is that you might be really worried that the idiot in the next office could step up and become your boss. So you have to do it, at least if nothing, if for no other reason than to stop him or her. And the easiest way is to take the role yourself. And I guess another reason is, I mean, sometimes it's simply about bowing to pressure from your colleagues. People who say, well, it's your turn. Or, you know, please save us from that idiot in the next office. Yeah. And I I think even if you weren't initially uh, reluctant, I think it's quite common to have second thoughts about taking on the role, at least uh, initially. I was talking to um, a managing partner of a large office of a professional firm only last week, and she'd just been appointed head of the office. 
And she was telling me how she didn't relish having to deal with the difficult characters in the office. She wasn't sure how much power she had. She didn't know the limits of her authority. And she wasn't actually even quite sure what she was supposed to be doing. And I kind of listened to this whole bundle of kind of complications around how she was thinking about her role. And in the end, I think it all boiled down to one simple thing. She didn't yet see herself as a leader. She couldn't quite believe that she was a leader. I mean, this ambivalence is is common. You have successful professionals who may be attracted to this new leadership challenge, but at the same time, they're not used to failing at anything. They've only got this far because they have been phenomenally successful, right going back to their early school years. So this kind of transition to a leadership role can be really scary. It can be scary, but I don't think there's a need to be scared. I agree that when you first start the role, there's a lot to learn and it, and that can be very disconcerting when you've used to be in control of everything. But there's really no need to be scared. And I suppose in a way, that's one of the reasons we're doing this podcast series to hopefully offer some help to people who are in that position, who are thinking about leadership or already hold a leadership role and are struggling uh, with it. So we've got uh, a guest along, Professor Herminia Ibarra of London Business School, to explore this issue with us. Herminia is a globally renowned scholar, and I've long admired her groundbreaking work on leadership identity and career transitions. And she's the author of many highly influential Harvard Business Review articles. Her most recent best-selling book is Act Like a Leader, Think Like a Leader. And she also runs the Women in Business Leadership Program at London Business School. Welcome, Herminia. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. You've written some amazing books over the years, and I've really enjoyed reading them. And one of the ideas that I associate with you very closely is the idea of identity transitions into leadership roles, and particularly the idea of experimenting with possible selves. Can you talk a bit about what that actually means? You know, as people move up into bigger or different leadership roles, part of what they have to figure out is um, how much do they keep doing the same things that have made them successful and how much to build off of their their competency base and how much to stretch into new areas and how much um, to tweak what they do based on the requirements of the job. You know, you're always what's required and, and what am I good at and what do I like to do and kind of negotiating those things. And what ends up happening for a lot of people is the what got you here won't get you there problem, which is that they just keep doing too much of the old things that their success and the rewards they got and the recognition they got were based on, and they don't adapt quickly enough uh, to what the new job might require. And what happens is is a huge opportunity cost. You do too much of the same old, you're not doing the new things that you need to learn. In a situation like the story that David told, there's two different things as she steps into this. One is, what's the job? You know, who's who's defining it? How much does she define it? Um, how much is it defined for her? What priorities does her boss have? What priorities might she have given, you know, her work there? And then how does she craft it into something that she'd like to do alongside whatever else she wants to keep doing it? And then the other part, the identity part, which is always the hardest thing for people, is who am I? 
And who do I want to become in this job? In which way do I want to grow? Do I want to be a leader? A lot of people don't off the bat because their sense of self is so rooted in what they produce and what they know and what they do as individual contributors. And so part of moving into those roles is really stretching into you know, maybe I don't want to be a leader in my archetype of what a leader is, but can I flirt with that a bit? Can I experiment a little bit for the sake of learning and for the sake of testing possibilities uh, for me in the future? How do you think, Hermenia, that people get out of this trap of being stuck using the same old competencies and not stretching into new competencies that they need to step up into this new role? So there's a couple of things. One is having role models. So talking to people who've gone through it and kind of seeing what they've done and seeing their evolution. The other thing is, is just by virtue of the activities that you engage in. And that is, you know, are there ways in which you can get involved in some things at the firm, in your professional association, whatever, that are going to kind of expose you to a wider perspective that are going to connect you to maybe other parts of the organization, to other groups you don't normally talk to, and that's going to expand your mind. I'll give you a fast example. One of my colleagues at London Business School recently took on a leadership job um, role. She's an academic, and um, she asked a coach to help her. And the first thing the coach did ended up being hugely helpful to her. It wouldn't have occurred to her, but she identified a few people who might have perspective for her on how the way she did her job would affect them and might help them. And that just kind of like opened up a whole new horizon for her as she was defining that role. I also want to touch on another one of your wonderful books, The Authenticity Paradox. And I know people find this idea quite confusing because they have been fed so much, frankly, garbage information, I would say, about the importance of being authentic. When you talk about experimenting with possible selves, I I think people sometimes worry that that might be inauthentic. Can you explain more about how you can discover who you are and be authentic in that way? So whenever you're at one of these, what got you here won't get you there crossroads. And it could be because you're in a new role, but it could also be that your environment has changed and expectations of you have changed. Whenever you hit one of those, um, you're always faced with two kind of competing tensions. How do I be myself in this, but also how do I adapt and grow and change? And, you know, the big mistake or the big trap is when you see authenticity as dooming you to being as you always have been. Now, the thing is, when you stretch into these roles, usually they come with requirements, particularly when they're bigger leadership roles that have to do not just with what you do, but how you do it, your style, how you come across, how you influence, how you persuade, how you motivate. And those things for people often feel much more rooted in their sense of who they are and doing otherwise, trying to come across as more authoritative when you haven't been or trying to come across as more inclusive when you've been more directive. These things feel to lots of people as an affront to their sense of identity, not explicitly, unconsciously. And that's what holds them back because we don't do things that don't make us feel um, very good. Now, everybody goes through that. And often the way you make your way through it is by experiment, by seeing how other people do it. And when you've got role models 
who you identify with, who you connect with, you say, gosh, I'd love to be like David. He's really good at this. Then it's a lot easier. It doesn't feel like a fake it till you make it. It feels like you're emulating somebody who's great, somebody you admire. When people are different, when you don't have lots of role models who look like you and you worry, in fact, whether people like you are able to be successful in the context in which you work, that kind of breaks down because you look at those role models and you say, you know, David's great, but if I did it like him, it'd blow up in my face. Or you know what, David's great, but I don't want to be like him. He's not the role model for me. And I've then, had people say that to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. They're being at least they're being honest. We can't be the perfect role model for everybody, right? So when those things happen, it kind of breaks down, and there's almost a sense of threat to move up in this organization or to be successful in this organization, I'm going to have to give up something precious about who I am. And once you're in that sense of threat, what happens is you become more cautious. You become more risk averse. You don't go out on a limb. But the problem is, what I've seen is you start labeling that your authentic self when it's not. That's not your authentic self. That's your scared self. That's your cautious self. It's not yourself um, who's kind of aiming to go for it. And that's where we have to worry about getting in trouble with this idea of authenticity, how we can keep ourselves from just trying some of the things that we need to do in order to grow and learn and develop. When you've been talking about moving into leadership positions, you've been talking about experimenting with different kinds of styles and approaches, which may or may not feel authentic. But what about if you've never thought of yourself as a leader at all, if your whole identity is bound up with being a professional, with delighting clients, with doing your work, or even as an academic, if your whole identity has been bound up with doing as a researcher, and suddenly you are thrust into these leadership roles <laughs> and that's not something you've necessarily aspired to or has seemed important to you. Surely it, it can feel very inauthentic to even have to start to act like a leader. Let me just add to that, that you know, my experience is that many professionals, even when they are in a leadership role, are very reluctant to see themselves as leaders and to, uh, if you say to them, are you a leader? They'll sort of say, well, you know, maybe I'm not really. I kind of, I'm just a partner, you know, I'm just doing my thing. So there's definitely a reluctance to take on that mantle. Can you explore that a bit with us? So the kind of people who've just been told, you know what, you're going to have to do less of that thing you really love doing, which is working with clients, and more of this thing you've never done before and you think you're probably pretty rubbish at. Yeah, sure. I've seen loads of it. And it is a tough transition. It is very similar to the transition that academics go to when they go into administrative roles. And the issue is this whole thing that I just described about how we learn by doing and by kind of creating a sense of a possible self that's a attractive doesn't work here because you don't aspire to that. You are indeed reluctant. You, you know, you're not so sure you want to be that person. And so one of the ways in which I talk about it is I call it being more playful with your sense of self. And what I mean by playful is that you're not committing to be that person. You're not committing to want to be a leader, but you're going to try some things that are new and different just for the sake of checking it out. It's almost like a fast prototyping of yourself because you won't know. You won't be able to change your mind. You won't be able to know how you feel about it until you've tried it a bit and see how it feels. Now, the thing is, how long do you have to give it a try before you start to assimilate it as something you might want to develop 
as part of who you are, because at first it doesn't feel good. Um, and it doesn't feel authentic, but it also doesn't feel productive. It doesn't feel like it's making the most of what you really know how to do. It doesn't feel like you're doing the things that are rewarded, that you're going to take a hit personally. I can share a fast anecdote because I experienced that very personally when I was first asked to chair uh, my department. This was uh, when I was uh, on the faculty at INSEAD. And the funny thing is I study leadership and I write about leadership. And we had been asked as department heads to work more on our future vision of the area and the group. Um, and, you know, these kinds of ideas were going to be tied to the kind of resources that we would get. And I remember having these endless discussions with my colleagues about what our vision should be and what we were aiming for and what were our priorities. And not only did they not go anywhere, but, you know, I'd kind of come back to my office dejected thinking, you know, I could have written another Harvard Business Review article and at least, you know, maybe I'd stand a chance at a bonus or I would have gotten something done, you know, I would have ticked something off. And, you know, this just went on. I, I remember distinctly a year into this, having a group meeting and having exactly the same conversation. And I'd been having meetings before the meetings and meetings after the meetings. I was trying to put in practice what I knew how to do and nothing had changed a year into it. Now, on reflection, and I, I am still much more of a producer than an administrator, on reflection, what I realized is that because I was so threatened with the idea of not getting anything done, that I'd be, you know, both accelerator and brake, you know, trying to do the right things and then just running back to my office, trying to spend as much time as I could on my old job as a producer. And I hadn't given it enough time to really get enough of an impact to then make it motivating to invest more time because you have to have the equivalent of some quick wins. And so that was a big light bulb moment for me. I think that's a very common experience because most people in professional firms, when they first move into a, a leadership position beyond the ordinary responsibilities of a partner, for example, they are producer managers and they do have to combine two roles, which really complicates this, as you described. And I remember, David, when I interviewed you once, you talked about the extraordinary thrill of closing a deal as a banking partner and the extraordinary adrenaline surge and delight you experience from that. And then compare the massive hit of success you can get from your client work. And then you go back to a bunch of moaning, irritated, complaining partners. Well, when you're doing client work, you're in a constant positive feedback. You know, you're, you're constantly doing a deal. It's, you, everyone tells you you're great. You can send in a big bill. There's a number on your success, all that kind of thing. And then it's the complete reverse when you take on a leadership role. You don't get any of that. Yeah, I, get, I would like to add something to that because I'll tell you what I learned with time. It's still not a role I love, but what I learned with time is that you take on this role and you become people's garbage can. You know, they dumped into you whatever problems they have. You know, they just kind of come at you. And, you know, at first when you don't know how to do this, you, you try to tackle all the things that are coming at you. And then at some point you realize you can't and you're miserable if you do. And then you start, particularly if you're having really those conversations outside that I mentioned before, you start honing this down to a couple priorities you're going to focus on and you delegate other stuff and you're slower in other stuff or you ignore it. And that makes a huge difference to keeping your sanity in these kind of jobs. 
I totally recognize that. One of my predecessors told me once that what you'll find in a leadership role in a firm like this is your partners were a bit like gun dogs. They will go and collect dead birds and bring them and put them in your lap and expect a pat on the head while they're wagging their tail. They're delighted they've dropped that problem in your lap and it's just another dead bird for you. I'd like to return to something you said earlier, Herminia, which um, fascinates me. When you talk about role models and when you talk about looking for people who look like you, I hear a lot nowadays about the importance of having senior women to look up to, or if you're someone from an ethnic minority, the importance of having people who look like you in senior positions. And I always find this quite problematic because certainly when I was young, starting in investment banking, there were no women. I was one of the more senior women, even though I was tremendously junior. And I've never seen the point of looking for people who look like you. I've always thought that you learn most by looking at people who are not at all like you. And the greatest role models I've had in life are people who are radically different from me, who can challenge me to be a better version of myself. But I realize these are very unfashionable thoughts right now. So can you help me unpick this, this whole idea of role models? What happens if there's no one who looks like you? You know, it's role models, but it's also peers. It's also networks. It's also sponsors. It's really quite a constellation of relationships that make you feel like you have people who have your back, that you have a place where you can talk to about the the difficult issues, that you get information that's really important in making up your mind, that you've got a place to bounce ideas. And so it's all of those things. You know, everybody's different, but research shows that by and large that pegging somebody as like me makes it more likely that the relationship clicks and that trust develops because you have benefit of the doubt. You kind of assume a commonality of experience and maybe values. And so that, you know, that's just a a kind of a proven fact in social science, uh, this similarity principle. Um, But but Hermine, sorry, doesn't that come down to what you mean by like me? There's similarities that are immediate and apparent and there's similarities that you take a while to discover. And if you don't actually have a coffee with a person or have more conversations, you'd never discover. And so what I'm talking about is what creates enough of a click that there's enough comfort in the in the initial BS chit chat or, you know, that kind of you walk into an environment and you can have a conversation that then allows people to say, oh, you know, let's have a coffee next week or let's meet when you come to London again. And so that's what I'm talking about. The other aspect is this like me thing. When you're in the minority, when you're a member of an underrepresented group, for a lot of people, this like me factor becomes salient. Actually, we know that from research, it becomes salient. And one of the ways in which it becomes salient is you say to yourself, can people like me succeed here? And and how do you do it? And I'll, you know, I'll give you an example. I've been for years, actually for decades, um, uh, directing uh, women's leadership programs. And, you know, a lot of the women come very reluctant because they're saying, just like you, that's not how I identify. You know, that's not the be all and end all of my identity. But oftentimes what happens, it it doesn't even take an hour before they're just talking away, um, finding all kinds of commonality in the questions they bring, the experiences they have had, the things that have puzzled them that they're trying to sort out. And And it's not because all women are alike. 
It is because they have, by and large, grown up in situations where they're the only one or one of a few. And so they have encountered things that now we call systemic bias or implicit bias. And so it's just it's a benchmarking. Oh, you experienced that too? Oh, that's funny. Uh, you know, here's what I saw. And those things matter a lot. And I think that's one of the reasons why people are look for that, not just in role models, but also, as I said, in their broader constellation of relationships. Now, of course, we've got to learn from people who are different. And that's the whole point of the authenticity paradox, which is, you know, it is precisely in those situations where you're going to feel most threat and most, uh oh, this isn't me, that you're most likely to learn. But it doesn't mean that you have to take what they do and assimilate it to yourself, but you have to think about how to push yourself outside what you'd naturally do, otherwise you don't learn anything new. So it's it's both what you've said and in that the reason why those likes attract. One of the things that I saw with junior women a while back when there were fewer, even fewer women in the senior roles, because there were so few, they were more likely to want the perfect role model because they just wanted proof that it was possible. And that didn't help. My key piece of advice is to young professionals is work for lots of different people. Get very varied experience as much as you can. Suck it up and work with as many different people as you can and learn those styles. Because attaching yourself to one person is almost always a career mistake. Harmenia, we're coming to, to the end of our time together and I really appreciate you giving us so much time. Thank you. What would you like to say to to the reluctant leader or the person who can't imagine that they could be a role model? And what words of wisdom you'd like to leave with our audience? I guess I'd say that today the name of the game is learning things you don't know how to do already. The temptation is you want to focus on the things you love that you do really well, but you have to ask yourself, are you going to love it so much still 20 years from now when you're still doing exactly the same thing? Probably not. And, but the thing is, 20 years from now, you're not going to emerge fully blown as this kind of leader person who could take on these bigger roles if you actually don't take on smaller roles along the way. And so it's a way of hedging your bets. It's a way of building a portfolio of different professional activities you engage in or, or ways of defining your job. And your own experience will teach you, you know, for some people, the answer will be, I learned some things. And often when we say I learned so much, you know, it was a miserable experience. They'll say, I learned so much and that's enough. (laughs) But other times people actually are pleasantly surprised to learn that they've got a knack for it, that they enjoy it, um, particularly when they get a little coaching from people who've been through the same. And so I I would say is, you know, try it. What have you got to lose? (laughs) I think that's absolutely perfect, Herminia. Thank you very much indeed for uh, joining us today. It's been a really fantastic conversation. Wow, David, what do you find the most striking about that? I think it was the whole discussion of role modelling. You know, that really resonated with me because I've never modelled myself on a single person. I always thought that you pick and choose from lots of different people that you work with. And I always tell that to young professional people as well, that they should get a wide range of experience with people so they can have multiple role models. I, I, I just assumed everyone had done that. It's what Herminia calls mosaic role modelling. And, and I do the same as you. When I feel I'm at my most challenged, I sometimes think of someone really different from me who has qualities I feel I'm most lacking at that moment. 
So my role models are different people in different situations, and sometimes my role model's you, for example. Surely not. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm particularly uncomfortable with the idea that a role model has to look like you. I mean, this is a very fashionable idea um, right now in the context of diversity initiatives, but I find this quite essentialist. It reduces our identity to a, a very narrow spectrum of demographic characteristics, and I think that's very limiting. But, David, I guess as a white heterosexual male, you've never really had any shortage of role models who look just like you. Well, yeah, but don't forget, you know, don't forget about there's there's lots of different uh, forces at play here. I remember, for example, when um, I was deciding whether I should stand to be senior partner of the firm, uh, I remember somebody had said about me, oh, this was relayed to me by somebody else. Oh, yeah, David, he's a great managing partner, but he's not really chair material. He's not board material, is he? And I, I was really kind of taken aback by that comment when I first heard it. And I realised that I was thinking of chairman in the vein of people like Lord Brown, who at the time was chair of uh, British Petroleum, BP. He was known as the Sun King. He was one of the most famous uh, British businessmen and the most fated, I think, at the time. And I'd been in board meetings with him and I was looking at him and thinking, there's absolutely no way I could ever be like him. And so when I heard that comment played back to me, it really did plague me because I thought, well, maybe I'm not chair. Maybe they're right. You know, maybe there's something about me that means I'm not chair material. I haven't come from the right background or the, speak with the right accent or or whatever, or have that kind of uh, complete supreme confidence uh, that he seemed to have. And then um, I was talking about this to somebody who I really respected. And they said to me, well, of course, you're not Lord Brown. You're David. You're David Morley. And you're going to do it your way. And it was just that one conversation that completely transformed my life because I thought, well, that's the way it has to be. It, it, it's, that's right. I can't be Lord Brown. I'm never going to be Lord Brown. I'm David Morley, for better or for worse. David Morley, global senior partner. Yes. You know, I'm really interested in this idea of authenticity. Um, and that's really, you know, what you're role modelling here in this conversation. This idea of being your authentic self in the workplace and I think the idea, you know, don't try to be Lord Brown, but be you, that makes sense. But as I said in the interview, I think there's a great deal of rubbish being talked at the moment about authentic leadership. It's a fashionable management concept, but it's based on some quite normative assertions, which really have very little empirical base. And basically what I mean is it's kind of prescriptive rather than an analytic concept. And it overlooks the fact that authenticity can be highly problematic if your authentic self isn't actually consistent with established organisational leadership norms, like of being a white, middle-class, heterosexual male. If you're not one of those things, or all of those things, being wholly authentic is potentially quite risky. And, and I think we need to acknowledge that and recognise it, for right or wrong. And when you look below the identity demographics, I think it's fair to also ask, you know, what is your true self? One of the things I love about Herminia's work is she's great at giving people permission not to worry about who they really are, but to focus on who they want to be. And I think that's where this idea of authenticity can be really useful, is how it kind of can be used to counteract this, this concept of bleached out professionalism, which um, which I think is 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 really about 
recognising that professionals shouldn't have to conform to this soulless image of what it means to be a professional. Yeah, you hear that a lot. You, I mean, I've heard quite a few people over the years say, well, where's all the characters? You know, because if you're focused on having to do 2,000 chargeable hours a year, there isn't a lot of time for soul. Or to even develop a character. <laughs> yeah, I, I think this idea of authenticity is a great way of, of encouraging people to to bring in their juice to work, to bring in their difference, their individuality, you know, what makes them them. But doing this in a way that isn't separate from their professional identity, but is integral to their professional self. Yes. And, and I like this idea of allowing people to see a bit more of yourself, if you like, and not being so buttoned up that you're just a kind of machine, a unit of production that nobody can uh, relate to. I, I, I totally get that. What what I often say to aspiring leaders is, remember that you are a role model now. I don't think there's ever a point where you get to a point where you, you never need role models yourself. Even now, you know, I think I look around and I look at people that I admire and I respect and I take pieces uh, from them, that pieces that I can use in, in my own sort of style uh, and so on. So I think it's important that you continue to do that and to incorporate that. Yeah, but David, that's one of the things that makes you you, uh, your lack of arrogance and your openness to carry on learning. A lot of men I know in your position who've achieved all that you've achieved might be a lot more complacent and a lot more arrogant. Mm, I don't know. Is that true? <laughs> yeah, yeah, trust me, tr trust me, David. It, it is true. Thank you very much. I think that's probably a great place to end. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And thank you again to Professor Herminia Ibarra for joining us today. You've been listening to Leading Professional People with Professor Laura Empson and myself, David Morley. And we'd love you to rate and review the podcast. Please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we very much look forward to you joining us for the next episode. Thank you. Thank you.